Well, this morning we're going to be opening Philippians 2 again and going into a passage that perhaps is familiar. It's about growing in the Lord, but as I dug deep into this passage, it was like I had never really plumbed the depths of it and understood what was there. It's about spiritual growth. Let me read verses 12 through 18 just to get us started. Familiar paragraph from the Apostle Paul, verses 12 through 18 of Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Well, that's God's word. That is uh, a very important text that we began going into last week. And this is a part two to last week in terms of growing as a Christian. What I have found is that as we proceed into this paragraph, verses 14 and following, is that Paul is expanding the idea of how to grow to the idea that growing is one of the most effective ways that you can witness to the power of God in your life and for other people to see the power of God and be one to Christ. How do you witness? Well, Paul's classroom in witnessing is here. You witness by growing. If you grow, people see the power of God in you, and they take notice, and here it says that you are a light to the world. And I think people are looking for the power of God, and people look in churches, and sometimes they are left wanting. They're looking for people that authentically grow. You know, where is the power of God? Where is it? And churches sometimes get desperate and move off script. They move away from the scripture. They move away from the power source, and they begin to promote program or aesthetics or experiences or psychology or felt needs or ways to try to captivate people and be profound instead of manifesting true spiritual growth. How do you win people to Christ? How do you manifest the power of God? Well, you grow. You authentically grow. And people say, huh, there's something real about that place. God must be here. Growing. Spiritual growth. It sort of reminded me of being a kid and, you know, the idea of people looking for power. It somehow popped into my mind this experience I had when I was 10 and my brother, older brother, was 14, 13, 14. We went to a magic show. 
And there's all kinds of like, you know, pretend power and pretend things that go on at a magic show. And we had seen, you know, at, at points, different shows where I'm from, you would get some celebrities. We saw David Copperfield, you've heard of him, but a lesser known magician that we went to see was Blackstone the Magician. Some of you might be familiar with Blackstone the Magician. He was, you know, not quite David, David Copperfield type guy, but he showed up and we were all excited. We waited in line a long time to go see this. And so there we are and we're about 20 rows back in the concert hall and watching Blackstone. And his premier trick at that time was the floating light bulb. And so he would have this light bulb and it was levitating and he passed the ring around it in his hands and all of that. And then he would send the light bulb out over the crowd. So he sent it out to one side and we're watching that. And he's saying, whatever you do, don't touch the light bulb. Don't, don't swing at the light bulb. And so just, you know, watch it as it comes. And so it would go out and then it came out over us. So it's kind of amazing. We're watching it. And this guy next to my brother, probably inebriated a little bit, okay? I'm just saying the guy began to flail his arms wildly at the light bulb right next to my brother who's sitting there like this and he's going, oh, and, and the guy swats the light bulb, hits it, and it goes down into the orchestra pit and explodes. Everything stops. Blackstone is not plussed with what's going on, to say the least. In fact, he shuts the performance down, takes an intermission, and comes out into the crowd, okay? So he's got the usher's a flashlight, and he's looking for who did that to his trick. And my brother's right next to him. We're thinking the wizard is coming down the aisle, and he's going to banish us into the netherworld, okay? You know, this guy with the beard and the whole thing comes, and he, you know, we point to the guy that did it. <laughs> and we don't want to get zapped. And so Blackstone is confronting this guy and ultimately kicks him in the shins. I mean, just Wow. So then Blackstone goes back up on stage and begins to publicly rebuke him and calls him some things that I won't go into, but ultimately calms down enough to ask him a question. He says, why did you wave at the light bulb? We're all sitting there, you know, like school kids. And the guy says, I wanted to see if it was real. And I just think it's sort of a metaphor for what people are doing at churches these days. People are wanting something that's real. It's why people at times are going to more casual settings or moving even away from doctrine because they're just trying to be as real life as possible. But I want to point us actually to Scripture and to the tracks that Paul provides in terms of how to grow in the Christian life and that by growing, listen, you become a witness to the power of God that people see. If you grow, you're witnessing. Let's find it in Scripture. First of all, by way of review, uh, we talked about that Christians grow when two wills are at work. It's your will to obey and God's will that's working. You're working your salvation out. You're saved. Verses 5 through 11 in chapter 2 talk about the gospel that saves. You're saved. And so now you're going to work that out. That's sanctification. That's growing in grace. That's holy living. That's bearing fruit. It's part of your will. And while you work something out, God's working at the same time within you. This is not just a turn of the phrase. This is the key balance to the Christian life where we are working out 
through growth that's active submission. That was our point last week. Active submission while God is actively working within us. Well, verse 12 again, growth begins with obedience. And the word obedience or obeying means to, it's like answering the door. It's to listen. It's listening to God's word and responding with the will. Not acting in legalism, not trying to um, check off boxes, you know, of a list of do's and don'ts, but following the example of Christ. As Jesus obeyed the Father, we're obeying Christ in humble, active obedience. You've got to be active. And then you've got to take your salvation personally. You've got to own it. It says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You see that phrase at the bottom of verse 12, your own salvation. You have to trust the sufficiency of Christ's power in your life. You can't just lean on mentors. Paul's saying, whether I'm here with you or whether I'm absent, uh, you need to grow. And the greatest Christians grow when they own the fact that they're going to grow by a relationship to the Lord first and foremost. So that they're not trusting in Bible studies or mentors primarily. You're trusting in Christ to grow, to work out your own salvation with dependence upon God and we talked about this last week the words with fear and trembling with phobos and traumas in other words we're understanding and recognizing that we serve a holy God who is without sin we serve a Lord who is creator of all who we are in awe of as we humbly throw ourselves at his feet and say Lord help us to grow it's a, an attitude of helplessness and weakness as we trust the Lord in this process. But not only are we moving towards the Lord in taking steps to grow, secondly, God is growing us all the while. God, God's will is involved in our growth. God is willing for you to grow. Let that sink in for a second. God not only picked you to be saved, he has chosen you to grow. And he's interested in your personal growth. This awe-inspiring holy God is also a personal, loving, protective, interested, devoted, committed, heavenly father to you. And wants you to grow as his child. As an adopted child who cries out, Abba, Father, Help me, help me, Daddy. He is there to rescue you, there to empower you, there to move you along in the Christian life. And we see this in verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Who begins the growth process? Well, it's sort of that mystery again. You know, we're supposed to obey. And at the same time, God's working, actually working within our wills to obey. Look at this. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work. Look at this word will. Do you understand that God is actually, he's, he's working out his perfect will within your desires. I mean, we want to kind of go this way. We want to check out. We want to stop growing. We want to not obey. And God is always working his divine intervention to override. And say, okay, no, son, daughter, you, you need to move along. You need to grow. And he, he works within our desires. 
We're not puppets on a string. I'm not a determinist, but I do believe in divine mystery intention here that as we're obeying, it's because we're being prompted through the will of the Lord. Literally, God's giving us his power as we are moved along. We find that in the word works or ergon. You see, God who works in you. And then the same word is used again, both to will and to work. That work word, that ergon word is always in the Bible talking about God's power, not our power. Philippians 1.6, same word. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it till the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's working. It's the old child song. He's still working on me. He's working. And we should be thankful for that because we are not just trusting our own intestinal fortitude to carry us along are we we can't grow ourselves we can obey but we're obeying as we are lifted up and moved along and drawn to christ as we're growing christians grow and god's power is on display when it happens it's dynamic it's inexplicable when it's real so the word work there is repeated for good purpose You know, you think, who is the one working? Well, in Romans chapter 8, we're called to put to death the deeds of the body. So we're putting sin to death. But a few verses later, 8.26, likewise, the Spirit helps our weakness. And that's talking about the ministry of prayer. So we're killing sin and God's lifting us along in our weaknesses, interpreting our prayers so that they are powerful. He calls us, he justifies us, he sanctifies us. In Romans 8, 28 and 29, he's working all things together for the good so that we will be glorified ultimately. It's the unbreakable chain. He's promised to grow you. And nothing can separate you from this growth process. At a core level, he's working inside of us. So growth begins with God's energy and growth is promised according to God's will. And then finally, look at this. This jumped out at me. Verse 13. Growth is motivated by what? God's pleasure. Why? Let me ask you. Why did he choose to grow you? And you say, well, because, well, haven't you met me? I mean, you know, how do you like me so far? Uh, right? I mean, why did he choose to grow you or me? Why? Why did he choose to save us? He doesn't save people and then not call us to produce fruit saved people grow even a little bit all who are led by the spirit of god are the sons of god romans 8 says we're going to bear some fruit even small little portions of fruit will sprout up because god's involved in this process but why did he do it why is he doing it why is this commitment rock solid well it's because he finds happiness listen to this he finds happiness in growing you he finds joy in this this is what brings joy to god's heart the cosmic infinite i am god of the universe his name is i am the self-existing god of the universe is the one who is committed to growing you why because he decided to you say, why, why did he grow me? Well, because he, he decided to do that. I mean, it, it's just, it's nothing we did to prompt him in the decision. He just chose to do it. 
And so nothing can break that commitment. It's like a unilateral commitment. Remember Abraham, um, God made a covenant, made a promise to him that he would make a great nation out of him. Within that promise-making process, God committed to himself to fulfill it. It's the same kind of promise here. He loves you because he does. And it's inexplicable grace that he's growing you and me. So, I mean, we approach him with fear and trembling, but we also remember God's promise to love us no matter what and to grow us as a father loving his children. Okay, so this is the unique balance of verses 12 and 13 of spiritual growth. Now let me add what Paul adds here in verses 14 to 18, and that is this thought. How do you know when you're growing? I mean, again, we want to manifest the power of God. We want to see God's work in our lives, not only for our own personal satisfaction that we're growing, but so that other people will sense God, God's power in our lives. Why? Because we want people to be drawn to God. We want people to see God's power here at Anchorage Grace Church, corporately. But we also want, on the, in the workplace and other places, we want people to see God's power in our lives there. How do we know when that's happening? Well, let me answer the question with the text. First of all, verse 14. It's a command. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. Let's stop there. You become a clear witness to unbelievers when you're growing. You will be able to see in your own life, and in the responses of other people as they're watching you, that God's power is on display through you. It just happens that way. It's surprising where when you begin to live obediently to the Lord just a little bit, out loud, in front of people, just a little bit, people go, wow, what is that? And you go, wow, what is that? Well, it's God's power on display. What does it look like? Well, look at the command here in verse 14. Paul says, Again, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Okay, what is it going to look like? Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. You say, well, that's anticlimactic. What are you talking about? I mean, when I read Philippians 2, I'm typically going, okay, you know, get me to the gospel paragraph. That'll be fun. You know, I'll think about that. Okay, yeah, and then Paul must have randomly inserted, do all things without grumbling and complaining. He was having a bad day. He said, okay, yeah, we don't want people to do that, right? Just there it is and move on. No. This is actually Paul's first direct application to working out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does it look like to live the gospel? Don't grumble and don't complain. This is a watershed directive. This is a watershed issue, watershed matter in terms of the state of your soul. Do you grumble and do you complain? Do you dispute things? It's a command given in plural to the whole church. And it's not a mundane command. It's actually a command that needs to be obeyed. Otherwise, it is the undertow to the body of Christ. It's a picture of purity when you don't grumble and complain. And it puts the power of God on display when 
you are pure in this regard. So the, the context here could be something like this. Philippians 4, we know that Yodia and Sintichi, verse 2, they were arguing. Paul was calling them out. In verse 1 of chapter 1, he's greeting the overseers and the deacons. I mean, we might connect the dots and just think that maybe these two women represented a great division within the church so that their names are called out not because Paul's picking on them, but he's picking on the issue of division that could be happening at this church, even in seed form. Perhaps it was even um, that the church was entertaining criticisms against the leadership, the overseers and the deacons. Not sure. Nevertheless, we need to understand that grumbling and complaining is a deeper issue than just a bad habit. Paul's not just saying, hey, don't have a bad attitude so you, you know, have a plastic smile instead as a Christian. He's not saying that. He's talking on a deeper level. The word grumbling is, um, watch this, here's you literary buffs, here we go. Um, it's an onomatopoeic word. What does that mean? It means that the original Greek word actually, as you speak it, sounds like the action. It sounds like murmuring or grumbling to say the word. It's gagusmein, and it's the idea of this murmuring or grumbling in the heart. It's the internal dialogue of negativity against people or circumstances. Very convicting stuff here. Um, if we take pause to meditate, this is the subtext of negativity that rises in the heart when you are upset or angry at someone or something or circumstances. When things aren't going your way, it's the match that's lit in the heart where you begin to go wrong. It's the subtext. It's the thing that I do when I'm, I'm studying, and then in the next five minutes, I'm away from the study and off to the races. And I'm going, wow, I, I'm, I'm doing the very thing that I'm studying not to do, that the Scripture's telling me not to do. It's that grumbling thing. It's the seething dialogue inside that, again, that begins to bubble and foment to the outside, where you're grumbling or disputing. The word disputing comes from the original word um, where we get the word dialogue. It's the idea of out loud dialogue about what's going on on the inside. So when we grumble and murmur and complain on the inside and burn up enough, eventually those words begin to creep out. We begin to bash, we begin to backbite, we begin to hurt people in negative ways. Or we begin to join the crowd at work where everybody's saying, hey, you know, I really hate this or that about my life or about this circumstance or about this situation. And as a believer, we are, we are posed with a gospel choice. Am I going to work out my salvation and not join in? Or am I going to join in and chew the dainty morsels of negativity with the crowd? That's what Paul is talking about. He's saying, don't do this in the church. And don't do this out in the world. It's negativity. It's, it's listen, it's idolatry. It's where God isn't enough. It's where you as a Christian say, you know what? I'm so bummed, I'm going to burn inside and verbally burn outside because I'm saying that God's power and plan is not enough to satisfy my heart. So I've got to make another way. I've got to build an idol of discontentedness. Remember Paul in Philippians 4 says that he learned the secret of being content. That was hard work that he went through killing sins like these to be content in whatever circumstances. 
Grumbling and complaining is the opposite of the joy-filled Christian life. It's the opposite of trusting God and trusting God's plan. People excuse themselves and allow themselves to grumble and complain by saying, look, that person needs to be verbally beat up a little bit. It'll help him out. It'll prop him up. I mean, he needs a little shake-up, right? So we're going to talk about this. Well, if it's not constructive, if it's not helpful, if it's not transparent, if it's not up front, if it's not edifying, then it's probably this. How bad is this sin? Well, let's turn back to who Paul was thinking of back in Numbers chapter 16. Numbers 16. This is a a familiar storyline from Israel that was rescued from Egypt, but they needed to be rescued from some sin in their hearts. They were just six weeks out of Egypt when they began to sin with the sin of grumbling and complaining. They began to doubt God's will. They began to miss the point that they had been rescued from slavery and from abusive labor. And they missed the point that God was leading them to the promised land. And they began to want to go back to what they thought was a better situation back in Egypt. And one of the worst manifestations of this happens in Numbers 16 with the tribe of Korah. Korah, as you would read in this chapter, they were the ministers. They were the tribe um, under Levi of people who were worship leaders. And they began to challenge Moses and Aaron. And look how they did it. Verse 2, they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation. And verse 3, they assembled together themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. This shows the pride. For all in the congregation are holy. Hey, we're just as holy as you are. Every one of them. And the Lord is among them. God's with us just like he's with you. He says, why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So they're accusing Moses and Aaron of having bad motives. Moses turns in helplessness. And really, he's making the response of fear and trembling worship here. It's a great example. Moses heard it and he fell on his face. He said to Korah and all his company, in the morning the Lord will show who is his, who is holy, and will bring him near to him. So there's kind of a showdown moment where Moses begins to call out to the chiefsmen of Korah, says, gather your censers. These are sort of torches to burn incense with. Gather your worshiping instruments and come around, all 250 of you. Let's have your families, your children, your wives all come around, and we're going to separate everybody out away from you, and we're going to see who the Lord affirms. Verse 8, and Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation and the minister to them? He's holding them accountable, saying, Look, you're called ministers in the temple. Is that a small thing? In other words, they were sinning not against Moses and Aaron, but they were sinning against God. Look at verse 11. Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? You know the point here? When you grumble and complain, when you sin in your heart in this way, you're not just sinning against people. You're sinning against God. 
Because who's the Lord of all circumstances? God. He's in charge. He is working his will out in your life. And eventually, if you live in a state of grumbling and complaining, it rises beyond just you criticizing your circumstances or supervisors. It rises to the level of sin against God where he is not pleased. Verse 15, it says, Moses was very angry. That's on behalf of the Lord. And in fact, uh, you know, children and wives and little ones are brought into this judgment, which we don't, you know, pretend to understand. But in the way that God's judgment came and perhaps comes, it's an overwhelming judgment where sin has consequences. Verse 27 says, so they got away from the dwelling of Korah. He was separating other tribes away from Korah and Dathan and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram, who were brought into this same judgment, came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works. Verse 29, if these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households. Did you catch that? Their households. And all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods, so they and all that belonged to him went down alive into Sheol, into the ground into the darkness, into the netherworld, which is, this is a picture of hell. Into Sheol, Sheol. And the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly and all Israel who were around them fled at their cry and they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And the fire came out and the Lord consumed the 250 men offering the incense. This wasn't the only judgment scene. There was also a plague, if you read in verse 49, where 14,700 more died. This is all sort of referenced in the New Testament under 1 Corinthians 10.10, where Paul warns Christians to beware, where they think they stand, take heed lest you fall. This is pride. This is the sin of pride. And Paul in Philippians 2 is taking this small narrative and putting the church in the meta-narrative, the grand, big-picture story of God's redemption plan. It begins with the example of this in Israel, and then it's played out in the New Testament church. Then and now, listen, we are part of this narrative. We are called people of God. We are children of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we dare not sin like our forefathers did. Kent Hughes put it this way. I love this quote. He just said, Paul sees the New Testament church as the people of the new exodus who have been delivered from a spiritual Egypt by the blood of Christ, the Passover lamb, and who are now on their way to the ultimate promised land, and he wants us to get it right. We've got to do right. 
We can't sin in this way because it is a big deal and it does hurt the church. By, in, in the opposite sense, when we obey by not doing this, I mean, that's what, a, again, witnessing and obedience here is by what you don't do here in your heart and in your speech. What happens? Just by not talking, this is what happens. Look at verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Stop there. So in other words, by not participating in grumbling and complaining, when you're in the middle of your worldly fellowship of friends or colleagues or whoever, when you don't jump into that sin... All of a sudden, people go, wow, you're different. It, are you a child of God? You're a Christian. That, that's witnessing. You say, it's so hard for me to witness. Just don't do this. Don't grumble and complain. And it's on. Suddenly, the, the dimmer switch, you know, it, it, it goes up and you're brightened because of what you're not doing. When you do this, your light is dimmed. Ephesians is where Paul said that you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Ephesians 5, verse 8. This is also a reference to Daniel 12, 3, um, being lights in the resurrection. This is resurrection light when you don't grumble and complain. The end of verse 15, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Again, you, verse 15 at the, in the middle, it says you're children of God without blemish. He's saying that you're like a living sacrifice. Without blemish is ceremonial language, um, the spotless lambs that were offered. You are bringing a sacrifice of praise to God when you don't participate in this sin. And also, I want to point out, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, this is a reference to, again, the children of Israel. Paul is picking right up on Moses' words in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses um, 1 and 2. It's the song of Moses. It's right before the, the Israelites were going into the promised land at the end of 40 years. Moses writes a song. He's not going in, but he writes a song about the children of Israel. And he refers to their sinning, and he refers to their paganism and worldliness by saying they were a crooked and twisted generation. And so Paul's saying, don't be like them. Don't be like the tribe of Korah. Don't get swallowed up in this sin. Be different. You want to be light in the world? Guess what? You got to be different. How do you witness? Be different. You're supposed to leave and separate yourself from the world? No, you're in the midst of it. You're called to go into it and be different at the same time. You're supposed to go into the warfare and spiritually smile. With joy in your hearts instead of sinning. I'm twisted here. It's uh, the word scoliosis um, is where we, we sort of find this word in the original language. It's a, it's a word that it talks about being twisted or perverse. You say, well, you know, I'm around a lot of people who are unbelievers and they're not perverted. Well, on the surface... You know, you, you shop at cars, you go around Walmart, you have colleagues at work, you got neighborhood friends. I mean, people don't, you know, appear on the outside to be, you know, sideways or perverse. But you got to remember something. Just think about your own sin when you're at your worst in your heart. 
And then think about how you would be if you had no Holy Spirit in your life to hold you in check. Take the Holy Spirit out of the equation. Think about the worst situation in your heart that you can be. And then multiply it out because there's no Holy Spirit in a life to hold it in check. That's where people are spiritually. What am I doing? Am I dogging people? Is Paul dogging people by saying twisted generation or crooked? No. People are in a state of rebellion against God and they need you to be light in their life. Who has God called you to be light in front of? That's the question. Because for you to grow spiritually is for you to show people and introduce people into the power of God. And people will say, all of a sudden, the Lord will start waking, wakening people up and, and they'll see light in your life and they'll say, man, what is that? I need that in my life. It's the power of God. Well, God is working in our lives and growing us when unbelievers see that we're different and also when unbelievers see our commitment to the word of God. Look at verse 16. You shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Uh, some people translate this as holding out the word of life. It's the idea that, you know, okay, you, you live the gospel by how you, you know, don't enter into grumbling and complaining, and then you also preach the gospel. But the context here and the way that, you know, the grammar is, it leads me to affirm this translation, that it's holding fast the word of life or um, holding or gripping tightly the word of God. What does that mean? Word of life here probably is a reference to Christ specifically and his teachings, his, the word of God that came out of his teachings, and it's the gospel. Because the word of Christ is what brings life. So how does it work? Well, I just want to say it this way. As believers, we cling to the truth, and the gospel is what sustains us through times of testing. You're undoubtedly going to be tested this week, where you're going to want to gossip. You're going to want to grumble. You're going to want to dialogue out loud about something in a sinful way. And hopefully the Lord will bring you clarity in the moment, and it'll be the word of life that comes to your mind where you go, oh, wait, I'm not supposed to do that. I'm not supposed to enter into that. I, wait, this is where I abstain and become sunshine, sunlight in the moment. Not in a proud way, but just by fighting your flesh, by fighting that temptation, by remembering the gospel, the word of life, by holding it tightly in your heart and in your mind by conviction, you become a power source. You become a witness of Christ's power. And you're a difference maker by having a commitment to the Word of God. Daniel did this. I was reminded of this this week that, you know, Daniel was a guy in the midst of a crooked and perverse Babylonian um, culture. He was affirmed and respected by the leader at that time, the Nebuchadnezzar uh, Darius. And Darius loved Daniel, but his, you know, Darius's vice presidents and satraps and spiritual leaders wanted to undo Daniel's reputation. They wanted to get him in trouble to undo his position of power. They didn't like Daniel, and so they conspired to go against him, and the only way they could 
try to trip Daniel up or get him in trouble was by getting Daniel to go, um, to, by making a rule that would go counter to his commitment to the word of God. Just listen to this verse. It summarizes everything. Daniel 6, 5 says, Then these men said, quote, We shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel, this Daniel, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Don't you want that kind of testimony? Where if somebody's got to come after you and trip you up and try to sully your reputation, they've got to find a way to trick you where you've got to choose between being gospel-centered, Christ-centered, or following the world. And that's what they did with Daniel, and he didn't compromise. He was a person who held fast the word of life. All right, secondly, you know you're growing, verses 16 through 18, when you become a blessing to other believers. This is, this is Paul's testimony, and it's his affirmation of them. And I want to sort of wrap up quickly with, with his affirmation. Paul says, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Immediately, some of you will say, well, Paul, is he allowed to be proud? Well, we're talking about the day of Christ. So we're talking about a heaven scene here where everybody's brought before the throne of Christ. And it's where fruit is being manifested. The fruit of laboring in the Lord is being manifested. And Paul's saying, look, I want to encourage you. He's not trying to threaten the church to say, oh, you better obey or it's all going to be a wash. It's all going to be thrown away or vanity. No, he's saying, look, I know you're growing in the Lord. Please pursue spiritual growth so I can be a proud parent of you one day. Say, is it wrong for us to be proud of our kids? Absolutely not. It's, there's everything right, and even in Paul's testimony and leadership that points us that we are supposed to be proud parents of our physical children or our spiritual children. We're to be finding satisfaction when people grow. You want to find joy in your life? Grow. Or help someone else grow in the Lord. That's what Paul is saying. He wants to be proud. He's using the athletic metaphors. I mean, this is his wheelhouse. And also the agro metaphors of laboring in a field. He says, look, I don't want all of this to be in vain. And then he goes on. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, the sacrificial offering of your, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Stop there. Paul is saying, listen, I want to be proud of you. And I want you to realize that you as a church are in the same mission work as I am. Remember Paul? Remember Philippians 1, I think it's verse 14 or 15. He's saying, look, I'm advancing the gospel and I'm in prison. Might be verse 12, chapter 1. I'm advancing the gospel. I'm in a Roman prison trying to, you know, I'm seeing my reputation here as a missionary and possible martyr and gospel preacher, chained to Roman guards. I'm here in jail, and people are getting saved because word is getting out both in the Praetorian Guard and around the Roman community. It's happening. But listen to what Paul says here. He says, look, it's not about me. I don't want you to feel sorry for me. It's really about you as a church and what you're doing. He actually, in the picture here, brings us into the ceremonial, sacrificial, priestly roles and duties and shows us a picture of the church being the foundational sacrifice and the, the, 
the more important sacrifice. And then he says, he just wants to be poured out on top of it. You ever heard of the, you know, you have the lamb offering or the meat offering, and then you have the, the drink offering? That's actually where the priest would pour wine. It's a libation offering over top of the primary sacrifice. And he's saying, church, you are the primary sacrifice, and I just want to be poured out as a drink offering upon your sacrificial offering of faith. Paul's saying, look, if you grow, then it's all worth it to me. I'm in prison. I'm chained up. Don't feel sorry for me. Don't look at me. Think about what you're doing. Don't divide as a church. Be strong. Grow. Don't grumble. Don't dispute. Don't go there. Be strong in the gospel because I just want to be poured out on top of it like a wine offering on top. I just want to be the cream of, on the top here. I don't want to be anything. I want you guys to be encouraged in your sacrifice of faith. So you think the issue of grumbling and disputing is no big deal issue? It's a very big deal. It is a watershed statement on the state of the church and the state of your own particular life. And Paul is saying, look, don't go there. Don't be like the wicked and perverse generation. Be holy. And within your holiness, the power of the gospel, the fellowship of the gospel, your participation in gospel witness is on display. And I just want to be poured out on top of that. Paul could have been talking about the real potential that he might get martyred in prison. We know that didn't happen in 2 Timothy 4. He says, when he knows he's about to be killed, he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering from the time of my departure has come. But at this point, he's just saying, listen, whenever I die, I want that to be sort of just a blessing on top of all that you did and then finally, he says, so share in this joy. He says, I am glad, at the verse, verse 17, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Don't feel sorry for me. Let's enter into joy together. You want to be happy and joyful? Grow. You want to manifest the power of God and win people to Christ? Grow. Let's grow together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, and we thank you for this application to our salvation. Lord, we want to bear this kind of fruit. And I pray that this week we would abstain with our hearts and with our lips. We would abstain from this sin. Lord, let us instead realize that we are your missionaries. We are your servants. And we want the gospel to be on display front and center Lord, we love you. We thank you for this worship service, this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.